Um, well, as Russ said, we are going to talk about the resurrection. And I, I think uh, if, if people just give me a thumbs up, if you can see the slide here, that'd be good. Um, very good. All right. So <clears throat> what we want to talk about here tonight, uh, I just want to put a little disclaimer in here as well that um, we're going to just kind of look at what scripture says and give you some ideas. But I do believe that we are kind of treading in to some extent uh, unknown territory, things that we won't be able to grasp with our human senses, with our uh, realm of understanding. You know, I, I just don't think you could explain what green is to a man who has been blind from birth. Likewise, I don't think we're going to get a full grasp of the resurrection until it happens. But the scriptures are not silent on it either. So there's uh, a lot that we can look at and maybe put some pieces together to get a better picture of what's, what's happening here. Let's see if I can get my thing to, I'll do it that way. So in order to understand this, um, I'm going to kind of maybe sidetrack a little bit, but I think you'll understand why I'm doing this here in a moment. What uh, I want to look at, which is very timely, is the Passover Seder meal. Um, today, you know, what we as churches do is, is Easter. Um, at the time of Christ, what they celebrated was the Seder meal, the Passover, because this was a festival that God had instituted to uh, not only prepare, but to later celebrate the very resurrection of Jesus, which also is uh, very important, obviously, for our resurrection. And so what I want you to see here is that there were a number of things that happened at Passover. And you can go and read in Leviticus 23. It'll kind of talk about the um, Passover and the details, how it had to be done on, on the 10th day of the month. You would select a lamb. And so what would happen is the high priest uh, would go out on the 10th day of the month, according to what the scripture said, and he would go out into a field outside of the city, and he would begin to select a lamb that all year long there's been a flock that is being preserved for this very purpose. Lambs that were without blemish and perfect as far as what, you know, the, the shepherds could see. And so now high priest would go out, and he would examine the, these, this flock looking for one sheep that had absolutely no flaws at all. It had to be perfect. Well, once he selected that lamb, he would then tie a rope around its neck and lead it into the city. Now, by the way, as he went out of the city gates, he was leaving some priests along the way, along a certain path, and uh, they would just kind of wait for him to go do his job and come back. Well, when he comes back, when he gets to the gate to enter the city, all those priests that he had left there would now begin crying out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Now that should kind of sound familiar to you because we read about that very thing in Luke chapter 19, verse 39. We see that Jesus, as John the Baptist had already pointed out, he is the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Our Lamb of God, when he was entering into the city, the people started crying that very thing out. Now, this is something they had rehearsed year after year after year in the Passover meal. 
And now these rehearsals were finally being fulfilled as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. But how this fits with the resurrection, I'm going to kind of come back to this later, but for now I'm going to kind of give you a sneak peek, is the Pharisees were very upset. Why? Well, because Jesus is screwing up the Passover. At least that's what they thought. Because more than likely the high priest was still out in that, that field selecting the flock. He hadn't brought the lamb in yet. And so now here comes Jesus riding on a donkey, and everybody starts saying, blessed is he. Well, they're coming, and they're saying, make your disciples stop. Make them stop saying this, because they're screwing up the Passover. When in fact, he wasn't messing it up. He was fulfilling it. And so what's fascinating is Jesus' reply to them. What he says is this. He says... In Luke chapter 19, if he said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now, in my mind, as I've read this throughout the years, I just think, all right, well, if these people stop, you know, crying out, blessed is he, stones, rocks, just, you know, random rocks are going to cry out uh, about God. But there's much more to that than what I think we understand in our westernized culture. I just led a tour to Israel here a couple months back, and one of the things that we showed the people is in the cemeteries, you see they will have rocks, these little stones, on all of the graves. And what that is to a Jewish mind is a, a stone is a, a memorial of something that is eternal, something that uh, does not die. And so they put these stones as a sign of the resurrection, a sign of, of life and eternity on these graves. Now, we do know because the Bible tells us some things, the Talmud, uh, Jewish history, it, it discusses what goes on on Passover. We, we do know what gate Jesus would have been entering to go into the city. And it just so happens that he would be going right by a Jewish cemetery that is still there to this day and would have been even in the days of Jesus. And so as you read this verse here, I want you to picture Jesus is riding in on a donkey and he's looking and probably pointing to these graves. And he's saying, if these people don't cry out to me, then these stones, these graves, the people in the graves, they will cry out. And so that's going to be very important as we continue here. First um, Peter 2.5 says this about us, because of us being a new creation in Christ Jesus, that when Jesus came, he, he basically, he didn't get rid of the law, as he says, but he changed its location. He put that inside the temple, inside us. You know, in the Old Testament, we had a temple, and inside the temple we had, in the most holy place, there was this Ark of the Covenant. And inside the Ark of the Covenant were the Ten Commandments. And basically, that was a picture of God's dwelling place. Well, because of Jesus, we are now his dwelling place. The scriptures tell us we are the most holy place. And inside of us, 
God has now placed his word, his law, in our hearts, as Romans tells us. And so in 1 Peter 2.5, it says, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so what I see happening here is when Jesus is saying these stones will cry out, it, it was not just a metaphor, but it was a prophecy. He was prophesying that those dead people would cry out because the Pharisees and the Sadducees were not going to uh, praise him. They weren't going to say Hosanna in the highest. And so at the resurrection, as you will see, this prophecy does come true. So Matthew 27, verse 51 is kind of a, I'm going to hint at it here a little bit. and We'll, we'll kind of maybe come back to this verse. But we see here, it says, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom when Jesus died on the cross here. And the earth quaked, the rocks were split, and the graves were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his, Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now, a lot of times we don't really um, uh, put the right timing on this because, uh, at least me, growing up, when I would read this verse, it's talked about when Jesus dies on the cross. And so when we read here in Matthew 27, he dies and it tells us that, you know, there's people come out of the graves. And so we naturally place the timing of that at Jesus' death. But it's very important to understand here, the timing of this isn't when Jesus dies, it's three days later. At his resurrection, they appear and they go in and talk to, you know, friends, family in the city. Um, just this one little line that we see in Scripture, and yet it just leaves so many unanswered questions, and it, it makes so many things in my mind of what, imagine being there in the homes and, and having your dead ones appear to you. Something very important was going on here, and that is why this is recorded in Scripture. Now, these resurrected stones that Jesus said, you know, if, they, if, you, if you guys don't worship me, these stones will. That is what was going on. I truly believe that's what's happening here. These resurrected stones were crying out as a witness because the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and many of the people would not. And so the prophecy Jesus had uh, said there as he was riding into the city is coming true at his triumphal entry here. Now, Stones in scripture are important. I'm not going to get into this too much detail here tonight outside of we can see many examples that stones are memorials. Uh, Jacob and Laban, they set up a stone heap as a witness between the two. Um, we see when they crossed the Jordan River coming into the promised land, they took 12 stones that were to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. And so stones are important. They are something that are uh, pictures of eternity and eternal. In Revelation 3.12, it says, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And so again, we are that holy place, but he's still referring to us as stones and pillars and something that is, is eternal, you might say. Uh, 
And so that's as far as I'm going to get into it, even though there's many, many pictures that we could see with these stones. I just wanted to point that out. But what Jesus really wanted as he's riding into Jerusalem is he's saying, I want worshipers. That's what I'm seeking. And uh, that's what he accomplished with his resurrection. We see that when he goes to the Samaritan woman at the well, the Samaritans were different in the fact that they were kind of a product of the Assyrians. When the Assyrians had came and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, they took all those Jews and they assimilated them into the, their own culture and they lost some of the, the truthfulness of what scripture said. The, the culture had affected them. So the Samaritans were, a, were those people who had been captured by the Assyrians and the Jews did not consider them to be um, Jews anymore. They had been corrupted. They were pretty well considered Gentiles, even though they had Jewish blood. And uh, when Jesus goes and, and meets this Samaritan woman, the arguments was, where are we going to worship? Because we worship on Gerizim, but you Jews, you say we must worship in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, well, yes, we, you are going to worship in Jerusalem. We do worship in Jerusalem. But he says, the hour is coming and now is. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And so that's going to be important because what I believe he's saying is in some senses of what happened here in the prophecy of these stones crying out. That these stones, these resurrected dead in their spirits were worshiping him. They did not have, I don't believe there's any uh, biblical indication that they had the physical bodies that they're going to have at the time of the real resurrection later. And we're going to come back to that. But that they were worshiping in spirit and in truth. And that I think even the dead, to some extent, can praise God. Um, again, I'm not going to understand that completely, but we'll maybe come back to it. So anyway, <clears throat> to kind of come back to this, what we see is, that the high priest would normally, as I said, bring that lamb to that gate. Everybody starts crying out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the high priest would then go and tie that lamb up on the temple mount for the next three days. And for those three days, the scribes and the Pharisees and anybody could look at that lamb and examine him, the lamb themselves to make sure that the high priest had done his job correctly. That uh, it was a lamb without blemish. At the end of the three days, on the 14th day of the month, that lamb was then declared by the high priest to be a lamb without any defect, a pure, clean lamb. You see, that is in uh, John 18, where we read about that. Well, it's no accident that it is the very day, the 10th day of the month, that Jesus is riding in on a donkey, as we already talked about, that they were crying out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, as they did when the lamb was brought in. And that when Jesus comes into the city, if you go look in the Gospels, you see that he goes to the Temple Mount, the very place the lamb was supposed to be tied up. 
It says he finds nobody there, and he goes then to Bethany that evening. But where does he come after that? The next three days he comes and he spends his time in Jerusalem at the temple where the scribes and the Pharisees try to find fault with our Lamb of God. They, they test him with these questions, and, and they, can't, they, they find no fault with him. And as a matter of fact, so much so that they decide not to ask him any more questions. And we even see Pilate then at that same time at the end of those three days. Jesus is arrested. He's taken to Pilate. Pilate washes his hands and says, I find no fault with this man. Well, then the lamb, at the very moment that Jesus dies on the cross, that lamb is also killed according to Jewish history and records. So he dies the very hour the Passover lamb was to die. But as the high priest would kill the lamb, he would say, I thirst, and he is given a drink of wine. Well, Jesus on the cross, our high priest as well as our lamb of God, says those same words. Then, <coughs> excuse me here, after that we see that the high priest would raise his arms up to heaven like this, and he would pronounce negmar, which means it's finished. Jesus himself, shortly after saying, I thirst, with his arms outstretched, says, I thirst. Then he says, uh, or he says negmar, which is, it is finished. Now, we know that the other aspects of this is that the lamb had no bone to be broken. Jesus had no bone broken. He's put, the lamb had to be eaten before sundown. Jesus was put in the grave before sundown and so on. Those same type of things. What I want you to see is that Jesus is fulfilling the Passover to a T perfectly. What does that have to do with the resurrection though? Well, everything. And the reason I say that is because God has, in his word, instructed some biblical festivals. Sometimes they're called Jewish festivals, but only in our words, not in the biblical terms. In the Bible, they were always called the Lord's festivals, and they were pointing us to these very important events. The Seder meal, the Passover, and what they did for centuries were all pointing to Jesus' death on the cross. But in connection with this Passover, three days later, there is another festival of the Lord called the Festival of First Fruits. And this was to point us to the resurrection. Because that priest, after he would uh, kill the lamb, pronounce the Negmar, he would go from the temple back to his place. Now, there was even a bridge built, and today there's remnants of that. We can see it in history, where that priest was able to walk across the bridge back to his house so that nobody would touch him, because he was supposed to be in seclusion for three days and three nights. Nobody was supposed to touch him or see him. Well, we know that Jesus, our high priest, once he is put into the grave, remains there for the next three days and nights. And nobody was to touch him. Remember in John 20, verse 17, Mary comes out early in the morning. Jesus had already resurrected. And he says to her, touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my father. 
Why wasn't he allowed to be touched? <clears throat> well, for the same reason the high priest was not allowed to be touched. Okay, this is a picture of purity. He had not yet gone to the Father. The things were not completely finished yet, but he was living out the festival of first fruits, which I'll explain here. Later, however, after he has ascended to the Father, after those three days are over, Thomas comes to him and he says, here, touch me. Put your hand in my hands. Put your hand on my side. Feel. And so there's something unique about the fact that he wasn't being able to be touched until he had ascended. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 even connects Jesus to be this first fruit. It says, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. And then it goes on in verse 23, it says, Christ, the first fruits. Jesus is called the first fruits, which any Jew reading scripture, their mind is going to go to the third day after Passover. And this is what we see. So Jesus not only dies on, first, uh, on Passover, he rises from the dead on the festival of first fruits. Now, we're not going to talk about this tonight, but just so that you know, the next festival is called Shavuot or Pentecost, and something kind of important happens on that day as well when the Holy Spirit is given. And so these festivals of the Lord have deeper meaning than what most in modern-day Christianity understand. But Jesus wasn't the only one that was called the first fruits. Look at Revelation 14.4. It says, these were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. Here we see that believers are also called first fruits. And I believe 1 Corinthians also does as well. So not only is Jesus called first fruits, the believers are, which also fits with the fact that we are heirs with Christ, co-heirs with him, as Romans points out. So what we're seeing is that there's something to do with a resurrection at the time of Jesus' resurrection or at the Feast of First Fruits. That's going to be important because, remember I said, it wasn't when Jesus dies that these people come up out of their graves and are resurrected. It's at his resurrection, First Fruits. So just note that connection for now. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus, we often hear about the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. And I think I've talked to some of you about this before when I was at Faith. But bottom line, I do not believe this is a parable. I believe this was a true historical event. You can disagree with me if you want. That's okay. But the reason I believe that this is a true historical event is because in no parable does Jesus ever give a personal name. He might say there was once a man, or once a king, but he says there was a guy named Lazarus. He goes to Abraham's bosom, and he's very specific about this. And so I tend to think that this is a true historical event that gives us an understanding of what happens or happened when you died before Jesus. Because when we die today, I think it's different than when somebody died before Christ. Here we see this so-called parable. It says, 
there was a certain rich man and there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate, full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. The beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried and in hell. Now the word there is Haiti. He lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and seeing Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed. As I skipped a little bit here, it says, so that they which would pass from here to you cannot, neither can they pass to us. And by the way, I'm using the New King James here for these uh, scriptures here tonight. What I want you to see, like I said before, personal names, Lazarus. Now, where does he go? He goes to Haiti. Now, in, this is in the New Testament. This is in Greek. When you go to the Old Testament, we see there's a, a little different here. They, they use the word Sheol. And Sheol is simply a place of the dead. Now, we know that Abraham went to Sheol. Samuel went to Sheol. The Bible tells us Saul went to Sheol. So whether you were good or bad, in the Old Testament, we see that you went to a place called Sheol. Okay, now, what we see in this parable here seems to possibly be a picture of what Sheol was. That when you died, you went to Abraham's bosom if you were a righteous person. If you did not or were not a righteous person, you went to a lower area of Sheol, in between which was this chasm that you could not cross from one to the other. In the lower portion, there was torment. He was thirsty. He was, he, it was not a good place. But in the upper portion, they were comforted in Abraham's bosom. Now remember, Jesus hadn't come yet. So that's why you would probably go to Abraham's bosom. Well, obviously, as this story goes, we know that he kind of explains that, uh, you know, he, the rich man wants Lazarus to just dip his finger in the water and put it on his tongue. And he says, he can't, this gulf is there. Uh, he says, well, go tell my brothers. And he says, hey, they have Moses and the prophets. If they don't believe them, they're not going to believe that even if someone would rise from the dead. So the resurrection wouldn't even convince them. They already have the scriptures to tell them what's supposed to happen. So as we look at this word Sheol here, all men... Go to Sheol, it says in Psalm 16, verse 10. The wicked, we see, definitely receive punishment there, according to Numbers and Deuteronomy and Psalm. And in Matthew, it's translated as Hades or hell. I have here from Vine's Expository Dictionary of Biblical Words, uh, their definition of Sheol. It says, a place of reward for the righteous. And then some scriptures there. Jesus' teaching in Luke 16 seems to reflect accurately the Old Testament concept of Sheol. That's basically what we just read, that uh, parable. One side of which is occupied by the suffering unrighteous, dead, separated by a great chasm from the other side, people, peopled by the righteous dead enjoying their reward. All right, so that's just what, I'm not making this stuff up. This isn't coming, you know, this isn't my uh, imagination. These are things that uh, have been written down. Now, as we go further, this is where it's really going to tie into the resurrection. We must ask then, what did Jesus do when he died from the time that he died until the time he rose and ascended to his father? 
Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8 says this, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. <coughs> so, a couple of questions here. Who are these captives? What are the gifts? Well, according to the Feast of First Fruits, here's what would happen. That high priest, who has now been in seclusion for three days and nights, will come out and he goes to a field and he will grab the first fruit or a sheaf of uh, grain that has already been tied up at a couple of days before. He simply goes and cuts it. They will go bring it back. They'll grind it. They make it into bread, a flour, add oil to it. They make it a offering to the Lord. And the priest will offer that as a first fruit, kind of like a thanksgiving of the first of the crop to the Lord. And so, in essence, it was just saying, here is the best of the crop, the first of the crop, they're yours. And it seems to be that that is what Jesus was doing. Not only was he the first fruit, but as Peter says, that when Jesus died, we, we have in our creed, he descended into hell, and on the third day rose again. We get that phrase all from one verse in Scripture, and that is in 2 Peter 3, where it talks about he descended. Well, what was he doing there? Well, I think that you can get from the text there in Peter that he was proclaiming his victory in the lower portion of Sheol or Hades. But I believe that he then took the people in the upper portion of Sheol, all those righteous people like Adam, Noah, okay, David, all these people who had gone to the upper portions, he came and he took them and he led them in his train and gave gifts to men, rewarded them. Now, I don't want to make like, hey, build a church over this or anything like this as far as being a doctrine, but it does fit the, uh, what I see Scripture saying here. It explains what's going on in Ephesians 4. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because when Jesus came, it changed things. And when we die, we are rewarded. There are gifts that are given to men. Even before the final resurrection takes place, I believe. Okay? And so he's fulfilling the first fruits. We are part of that. Now I'm going to switch gears here a little bit. And I want to just basically look at, to understand the resurrection, we need to understand life and death. How did life come? Well, Genesis 2-7 talks about that. It says, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So here you got this body that was formed from the dirt, but it's lifeless. How does the life come into it? God breathes the life into it. We see the same exact thing in Ezekiel 37 when he talks about the valley of dry bones, where you have all the bones come together, the muscles, the sinews, it's all there, but they're, they're lifeless until God breathes life into them. So what is life? Well, it's really not ours. It's God's breath. God gives us that life. 
So does it not stand to reason that if God gives us breath, when that breath is removed, that's the end of life? Well, that's exactly what we read here in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7. It says, Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. So what happens when we die? Well, the first thing is, is the Spirit returns to God, okay, to his presence in some way, shape, and form. And I know for me, that's a great comfort. And so the spirit that God gave, he then takes back. In Acts chapter 7, verse 59, we see some other things that kind of back this up. It says, they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So a couple of things here that we're going to see over and over and over in the Bible. One, this falling asleep, and two, this spirit going away. Just as Ecclesiastes said, okay, Stephen said, Lord, receive my spirit. The life you have given me, you take. Take it back. And, and as soon as he does that, the body is gone. The body falls asleep. It's dead. You can see in Luke 23, verse 46, pretty much when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Same type of thing. John 20, verse 17. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. This is Mary again. He says, to, uh, I, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. So I don't know if we can really compare ourselves to Jesus, but where does Jesus go? He's returning to God. Okay. And he had not yet ascended at this point, but uh, we'll, we'll go back to that. James 2.26 says this, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So we know that the body, what keeps us alive, is that spirit. I don't think that's any new amazing revelation for anybody, but I think it's good to see these scriptures uh, to show you this is what's happening. This isn't just some mindset of Christians. The Bible is very clear that it is the spirit, that when that is removed from the body, the body is dead. Okay? Job is ironically also very important to look at the resurrection. Uh, Job even said, you know, long before Jesus came, he had an understanding of the gospel. And he says that, you know, in my own eyes, I will see him. He makes reference to, to being able to see God with his own physical eyes in the future. Um, we're going to focus here in chapter 14, though, and look at a few verses. In verse 10, it says, but man dies and is laid away. Okay, you're dead. Your spirit has left you. Indeed, he breathes his last. And here's the question. Where is he? What's it like? What's going on? Well, he's going to answer that a little bit. He says, as water disappears from the sea and a river becomes parched and dries up, so man lies down and does not rise. 
till. So there's a time here, till the heavens are no more. They will not awake nor be roused from their sleep. Oh, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would conceal me until your wrath is passed, that you would appoint me uh, a set, and oh, I see your, my, your pictures are covering up some words, a set time and remember me. So he's saying that when you die, that's kind of it until the heavens are no more. Now, we'll get to this some more, but I just want you to see what Job is saying. He goes on in verse 14 here, just to kind of focus on this. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait until my change comes. And so it's not that when you are dead that, you're unaware of anything, but there's a change that's supposed to take place. We see with Lazarus and the rich man, there seemed to be some kind of consciousness that was there, right? We see here that he's acknowledging that there's a change that will come. What is that change? I believe that is going to be the reuniting of the physical body and that spirit. I don't believe the physical body we have now because it's going to be new as Corinthians will talk about. But in verse 15, he says, you shall call and I will answer you. You shall desire the work of your hands. Okay. We are the work of his hands. He formed us. And that's what God is kind of, he wants that back. Well, let's look at verse 12 of Job here and see, does this line up with the New Testament? Does it line up with scripture that we see? Well, of course it's got to because the New Testament and Old Testament do not contradict. It always lines up. But uh, we see here in 2 Peter 3.11, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, speaking of the, the heavens and the earth, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved with fire. Uh, heavens will be dissolved being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So what we see is that there's a time coming when the heavens are going to go away. They will be gone. And this is what Job was saying, that he would lie there. There would be no resurrection until the heavens are no more. Well, Peter says there's a time coming in the future when the heavens will be no more. Verse uh, <clears throat> 12 also said this in Job, they will not awake nor be roused from their sleep. Now that bothers some people, but we'll get to it a little bit. In 1 Thessalonians 4.13, says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. We'll just say dead. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then 
we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. So a lot of things in this verse that we see that um, the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Okay, he's going to descend from heaven. Then there's going to be a call. An angel is going to call some people up. And the dead in Christ, those who have died that were Christians, are going to arise. When is this? It's at the trumpet call of God. Okay. <clears throat> now, in verse 14, he said, Till my change comes in Job. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about that change. He says, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, just like Thessalonians was talking about. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. You see, right now, we have a corruptible body. Uh, we're, we're meeting over Zoom because of that corruptible body. Okay, we are prone to illnesses, diseases, growing old. We're prone to genetic mistakes. Okay, there will be none of that in the resurrected body because the corruptible is going to put on something that is incorruptible, something that can't get viruses, something that cannot um, uh, get hurt in any way, shape, or form. There cannot be any death. We see uh, in prophetic pictures of the lion laying down with the lamb, things like that. And so there's going to be a change in our body. So when we talk about a resurrected body, it's not going to be this ugly mug you see here. It's going to be like Robert Redford or something. I don't know, okay? But it's, it's going to be better than what this is. No mistakes. Uh, there will be no tears, no sorrows, none of that. And uh, so we, we definitely have that. Uh, you know what? I do not have, I came over here and I don't have a watch on. What? And my computer won't show me what time it is. What time is it here so I know how much time I have? It is uh, about 7.48. Okay, very good. So let's uh, look here in Revelation. It says, Behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. So when the Lord comes back, note as well that those who pierced him, they've been dead for 2,000 years. And even they are going to see him when the Lord comes back. Kind of like Job says, I will see him with my eyes. So even though it's not our body that we have, we're going to have the same abilities in the sense of being able to see and hear and think and reason and praise and worship. Uh, those things aren't going to go away with our new body. It's just going to be a perfect one. And I think that Adam and Eve, when we see them in the Garden of Eden, that was a picture of what heaven was. Adam and Eve were real people, real flesh and blood, um, and yet they were able to uh, do everything that you and I can do. It's just without any uh, hurt or trouble or mistakes and things like that. Can't even imagine what that would be like. Verse 15 as well there in Job, he said, you shall call and I will answer you. That call, we've kind of seen that alluded to here before. The angels are calling him. 
with, the, with a trumpet call. They call the resurrect for the resurrection. It says this in John 5, 28, do not marvel at this for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. And so what we're seeing here is there's a resurrection, but not everybody is going to have a good one. Some are going to rise for life in that perfection that I've been talking about, but others to condemnation, eternal damnation, uh, which ought to make us have a heart for those that do not know the Lord, that we should be wanting to share the good news with them. Acts 24 agrees it says, this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. And so when we think of the resurrection, we have to remember it's, it's for both sides. Um, now, by the way here, when Paul is speaking before Festus and Felix and uh, Agrippa, the, the Samaritan, or not Samaritans, but the uh, Sadducees did not believe in a physical resurrection of the dead. There are some today who believe that the resurrection, we will not be united with our bodies. But the Bible is so clear that we will have a bodily resurrection. All right. Um, there's a number of examples First uh, Corinthians 15, you know, he talks about it <clears throat> that just as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And he compares the resurrection in, in Adam to a future resurrection through Jesus. In essence, that if it was just, a, some people say it was a spiritual death in the Garden of Eden was all it was. So that's why Adam could live to be 930 years, because... There isn't a physical resurrection. It was just a spiritual death that happened to Adam because of sin. <clears throat> no, Jesus is saying, because in Adam all die physically, in Christ all will be alive physically. And that's kind of the idea that the Sadducees of Jesus' day took. They said, when you die, there is no physical body. It's only a spiritual resurrection. Well, Jesus answered them. So you can take this to the bank that there is a physical resurrection. Jesus uh, said, you err in the scriptures. Okay, so he says, at the resurrection, there will be neither um, marriage, nor be, you won't be married, nor be given in marriage. Um, he's answering those Sadducees who were trying to say, hey, there is no physical resurrection. He says, you know, this woman had a, a husband, and he dies, so she marries her brother, his brother, he dies, and this happens for seven people. So when the resurrection comes, whose wife will she be? And he basically says, well, you're not going to be marrying or being given in marriage in heaven. Okay. <clears throat> now, sometimes that disappoints people. They say, well, I want my husband to be my husband when I get to heaven. Well, guys, I can tell you this, it will not be a disappointment. Um, I'm, I'm not going to have time to get into it tonight, but um, I had a dream once that um, in my book on Revelation, I kind of share about it, but I, <clears throat> I don't know if it was more than a dream or what it was, but I'll tell you this, I saw the Lord. And when the Lord came, everything was just biblical, but I was standing face to face with a guy named Barnabas. And right next to him was Bartholomew, 
Right next to him was Paul, and right next to Paul was Jesus. And when I looked at Barnabas at the time that I had this dream, uh, he hadn't shaved in a while. He looked a little scruffy, and he was missing a tooth. Um, Just didn't look like a real, well, he looked like a homeless bum, basically, okay? Now, I know this is just a dream, but just, just hear me out. When I saw him, I was so happy to see him. I, couldn't, I didn't even realize that he hadn't shaved and was missing teeth and all of this until I woke up. And I thought, oh, that's weird. And then I realized, but you know what? We're not going to receive a resurrected body until the Lord comes back. But I went in and I gave him such a big hug. And I'm telling you, it was like he was my own son. And I'll tell you, this has been years ago that I had this dream. But I'm ashamed to say it. I had to go back and look up in the Bible who Barnabas was even. I didn't know who this, a Barnabas. And as I looked that up and I saw who he was and and the rest of the dream that I'm not getting into, it just, it blew me away. But I can tell you this, I believe in heaven, as scripture says, you will be known. Okay. Right now we see dimly as through a dim glass, but we're going to be known as he knows us. And we are going to know each other in such a deep, intimate way that you won't care if it's a husband, a wife, uh, or somebody you really didn't even care so much for here on this earth. They're going to be just your best friend. And so anyway, point being is the Sadducees, they didn't believe in this physical resurrection. But the Bible is pretty clear there is a physical resurrection. Jesus rebukes those Sadducees for not believing in a physical resurrection. Paul here is referring back to this to say, nope, there is a physical resurrection. And in that hope, he says, that's what I'm here for, is to preach the hope of the resurrection. Corinthians says, if there is no resurrection, our faith is in vain. If I have time, we'll get to that verse. Acts 23, 6. Um, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, men and brethren, I'm a Pharisee, son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. See, that's what I was explaining there. When he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly, assembly was divided. For Sadducees say there is no resurrection, no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. And so here we see that... Paul is telling us, no, there is a bodily, physical resurrection, okay? And we could look at other examples as well, but for now, just to give you that idea. John 6, 39, kind of look at this timing again. It says, this is the will of, my, of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. So when? When is the resurrection? at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up at the last day. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Verse 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. I think he might be trying to tell us something here. When's the resurrection? At the last day. Now, you might be saying, yeah, well, duh, we know that. 
But the reason I think this is so important to understand is sometimes I think that when we, uh, when people die, you know, you hear people saying, well, well, they're an angel now. Uh, no, don't demote me to be an angel. You know that Peter says the angels even long to look into the gospel. Hebrews says that the angels were created for me, an heir of salvation. They are ministers to the heirs of salvation, it says in Hebrews. So when you die, you don't become an angel. You're not just some spirit. You're not, you aren't going to be resurrected fully until the last day. All right? So what are we doing in the meantime? Well, sleeping. What's that sleep mean? I don't know. I think, as I said, I think there's plenty of uh, uh, consciousnesses there. You know, when you sleep, you can have dreams and whatever. I, I don't know. I don't know. The Bible doesn't give us all these answers, but I can tell you that it seems to be that you are conscious that you're with Jesus. But your body, it's definitely not there. Okay, Daniel goes on and says the same thing in chapter 12. At that time, Michael shall stand up. He's speaking about end times. The great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book, that's the book of life, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So, uh, John 11, 11. These things he said, and after that, he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go and wake him up. Jesus' disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he's going to get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death but that they thought it was, he was speaking about taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. He's dead. So that's what sleep means, is you're dead. But again, I don't believe that it's going to be that I'm going to die. Now I'm sleeping and I'm not aware of anything until, oh, the resurrection happens and boom, now I'm aware of God. Okay, I, I think you're going to have a consciousness but there is no physical bodily resurrection until the last day when he comes back. John eleven twenty one. 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again, Martha said to him. I know that he will rise again in this resurrection at the last day. See, Martha must have been listening. She was a good little disciple because this is exactly what Jesus had taught her back in John chapter 6. And so now she's saying, I know, you told me. You told me that he will rise again at the last day. Okay? So consistency throughout. We see the rewards that will happen there at the resurrection. In verse 13 of Luke chapter 14, when you give a feast, invite the poor and the maimed and the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So one of the things that happens at the resurrection is we are rewarded. You know, a lot of people, we, <clears throat> we kind of think, oh, we don't want to do any good works because that means, you know, that I'm trying to earn my salvation. No, 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 no. Salvation cannot be earned. Christ did that for us. But I'll tell you this. God over and over says that you are rewarded for the things that you do on this earth. Daniel says, those who lead many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. In Revelation 20, it says the time to reward those uh, has come. Uh, in uh, Revelation uh, 11, it talks about that at the sound of the trumpet too, the last trumpet. When it blows, the time to reward his saints has come. 
Revelation 20 that I was saying talks about the, that um, you will be rewarded according to what he has done. And so at the resurrection, there is going to be a reward or a punishment for those who are ungodly. Now, people say, well, how can that be? Because in heaven, you know, uh, when you're resurrected, I don't want to look at this guy and say, oh, how come he has such a big mansion and I've got this little one? I look at it this way, right or wrong. I don't know. It's just an analogy to maybe possibly help you in your mind. If I have a 15-ounce or a 16-ounce cup of water, I'm, I'm that cup. If I'm 16 ounces and I'm plumb full to the brim, I can't hold any more joy. I can't hold any more. But if I'm a 32-ounce cup and I'm filled to the brim, I'm in the same boat. That 16-ounce cup isn't going to look at the 32-ounce cup and say, oh, I want more because you can't handle any more. You're full. So whether you are a 32-ounce or, or a 16-ounce, you're full. Now, maybe that's a bad analogy. I don't know. But uh, when it comes to the rewarding, that's kind of the way I look at it. Um, how about time now, uh, Pastor? We got to be getting probably pretty close. We are at eight o'clock, but um, o'clock. I'll just say at this point, if there's folks that are wanting to to jump off, you're welcome to jump off. But I think we'll just allow Brian to keep rolling here. Yeah, and I'm, I've only got a couple minutes here left. Is all I'm really close to the the end, um, but I do want to. Because this topic is so weird, just uh, allow for some questions, too, to make sure that I'm making myself clear and not leading people astray on some weird weird uh, tangent either. So um, Matthew 16, 27 says, The Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. We see Revelation 22, the same thing. Jesus says, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me. Uh, John 14, 2, he says, I, you know, I'm going to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you. And so he's gone to prepare a place. But when you die, you will not be in heaven yet. Okay, I think you're going to be with the Lord. But remember, Revelation talks about a new heaven and a new earth that are coming. So he's going, he's gone to prepare that place. My parents who have died, I believe they're with the Lord but they do not have a resurrected body yet, but they're with him. Okay. How that all is. I don't think we can answer that question, but I do know that the rewards and whatnot don't come until that bodily resurrection takes place. Um, Hebrews nine twenty seven. it's appointed for men to die once, but after that judgment, it goes the same for those in hell. Bottom line is those that die. I think they probably go down to be with that rich man. And it's not until Judgment Day, Revelation 20, that we see <clears throat> that hell, that they're cast into the lake of fire. They're cast into the abyss and things like that. And so while it's still no joy ride for him by any means, um, the, the final reward and final punishment doesn't come until he returns. Hebrews 9 <clears throat> talks about the men of Nineveh rising up when? In judgment. Okay to condemn it. They will rise up in judgment. We see uh, the transfiguration. <clears throat> we see Moses, and I think that's kind of a unique case, but we see Moses and Elijah appear to with Jesus and some of the disciples there on the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, what was interesting about that is 
Moses is unique that when he dies, God buries him. And we see that the archangel Michael disputes about his body because I think Satan wanted it for some reason. I think he, he knew that God had a plan for Moses, that Moses would get to see the promised land, just not leading Israel in. He got to see it when Jesus came. And so we, we see some kind of unique examples with uh, Moses and Elijah there in the New Testament. But what's interesting is, by the way, who goes to get Mo, uh, the body of Moses, the angel. Who comes and gets us out of the grave? It, the Bible says he sends the angels for the resurrection. And so we see that same picture taking place there. Um, here it says in Matthew 24, 30, uh, just skip to 31. It says, he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the ends of heaven. Second uh, Corinthians 5, 8. He says, Paul, he, he desired, he said, we're confident, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body. And what happens if you're absent from the body? What happens if your body is asleep or you're dead? Well, he says to be present with the Lord. I don't understand it. I just know that even Paul said that if I'm not here in this body, I'm present with the Lord. And that's the important part. But the physical resurrection is going to be another reward in the future that's going to be wonderful. Um, and how that is, I don't know outside of it's not going to be like this body here. So um, I think with that, we've got more of the same kind of supporting the timing that it's at his coming that uh, each one in his own order, Christ, the first fruits after that, after those, uh, afterward, those who are Christ at his coming. So we see the same thing over and over and over through Scripture. So does that uh, spark any questions for anybody? If you guys have a question, feel free to unmute yourself. And um, if you're on your phone, if you hit star six, um, you're able to unmute yourself on your phone. And then when you're done with your question, I'll mute you again. So star six for anybody on their phone or the red microphone for anyone that would maybe have a question here on the Zoom call. So just one second, we've got a couple people with one question. Um, we're gonna start with uh, the longs and then we'll go to Tracy. The Bible states that uh, there are two things that will live forever, God's word, and men's soul. Amen. And, and that's very important because whether our soul be good or bad, you will be either eternally tormented or eternally rewarded and in glory with Jesus. And uh, yeah, the soul lives forever. It is not a temporal thing. And um, Again, my mind can't fathom that, but absolutely. Thank you, Terry, for that question. Tracy, do you want to jump in now if you had a question? Okay. I loved it, Brian, so thank you. But um, so when it says a new heaven, and a new earth 
can we then know that the spirit is with the Lord, it's present with the Lord in heaven because it's called a new heaven and a new earth. Regardless of what either of those looks like, the old or the new, can't we believe that the saved loved one is in the heaven present with the Lord? The spirit. While the body, we just went through the whole body, but the spirit. Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that question because that brings me something that I want to clarify on that verse. When the Bible talks about heaven, I think our mind automatically goes to the gold streets and, you know, the pearly gates. That's not always the case. Remember, um, Paul says, I knew a man who was once caught up to the third heaven. The Jews have always had an understanding of three heavens. The first one is where the birds fly. The second one is where the stars are. And the third one is where God's throne is. And so when the Bible says there will be a new heaven and a new earth, I don't think he's talking about the new throne of God. That remains, that's eternal. What he's talking about is the, 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 the planets, the stars. There will be a new earth and a new heaven. Basically his creation, all that that is under the curse as Romans says, that all of creation has been subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in order that the creation itself might be liberated from its bondage to decay and be brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. That's what's happening there when there's a new heaven and a new earth, is that the cursed, corrupted world, the heavens and the earth, the stars, the planets, those will be made new. But God's throne is not being made new. Um, that's eternal. I don't think that that has changed. We see when in, in the book of Exodus that when Moses goes up on the mountain and the elders, they see what looks like, you know, sapphire made of pavement, um, made of sapphire. That's exactly what we see in Revelation. I don't think there's going to be any change in the heavenly heaven, the third heaven, only the the the, the stars and so on so when our loved ones die again i can't answer a whole lot outside of that i see that what jesus did personally is when he died he went into sheol but then he led those people that were in the good parts and they he took them to be with him okay they, they don't have their resurrected bodies they don't have all of that but but their consciousness their their, their spirit are with him in some way, shape, or form. And that's why I really wanted to bring that up, uh, is to show you that I think there is some scriptural precedence to show that God has taken us to be with him now uh, because of Jesus' resurrection. Taking the spirit to be with him now, which he sits right now at the right hand of the Father. Yes. Now, whether or not that means we're, you know, at his feet, I don't know. Yeah. Thank you, Tracy. Uh, while it's fresh with what you just said, Brian, you mentioned that um, those that, you know, he took captivity captive. That's another translation that Ephesians 4 passage. Um, you mentioned the resurrection of, of these uh the saints that happened in Matthew 27 and that that happened um, 
at the moment of his resurrection and you you use the first fruits um celebration to defend that and so you just mentioned that um those who he took captive and took to heaven they don't have their resurrected bodies um how how can we reconcile Matthew 27 and these resurrected bodies out walking around and them being in heaven. Is there any way to reconcile that? Um, I think a couple of things. Number one, it doesn't say that they necessarily how they appeared to these people. Um, You know, there are people today who do see um, ghosts, spirits, the Bible says, even the angels, it says in Hebrews, it says to be careful when you entertain people, because in so doing you, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Um, so obviously, because the Bible says there can be no physical resurrection, I don't know if they appear just in some other form or in a temporary form or whatnot. I don't think I can answer it outside of suggesting that possibly it was they appeared in some other way, some not natural way that uh, like you and I would be. However, um, yeah, I guess I'm just going to have to leave it with that. There's no way to know for sure. All I see is, you know, 20, 30 verses saying that there is no uh, resurrection until at the last day and at the second coming, at the sound of the trumpet, uh, when the angels come, all of these things. So I think that it, we're dealing with a unique uh, event there as well, but I just don't have any you know, answers that I can be concrete about because the, silent, the Bible is silent on it. So guys like Enoch and Elijah, who never tasted death, would they be in heaven with their physical bodies? I don't think so. Um, I think that there can be a form of our body, but it's not that new resurrected body in whatever that is. Um, Again, maybe God, maybe there are some extra rules for some of these other people like Enoch and Moses that God does, not sure. But when it comes to us, uh, even in Revelation here, uh, we saw, I had it up here, that there were the souls of those who had been slain. Okay, it, Their bodies don't seem to be connected there in Revelation. Later on in Revelation 19, we see that there are white robes given to the saints. And it says that those robes are... Uh, the righteous acts of the saints. Again, that reward being seen, but the robe would have to go on a body of some sort. Um, Clearly, the disciples at the transfiguration were able to recognize Moses and Elijah, which is interesting because they didn't have any Polaroids of them. So how did they recognize them? How did they know, hey, that's Elijah. I remember seeing a picture of him. No, they just knew. And uh, that's just kind of like in my dream, how I just knew that was Barnabas. But bottom line, I just can't answer all of those details outside of God can do different things, but I don't believe that they have their resurrected bodies yet. Clearly, it's not their, their normal one. 
um, that would be corruptible. Um, but I think we're again dealing with some unique thing because Moses, first of all, is also a picture of Christ in, in many ways there. But um, for God to bury him, um, for Enoch to be taken alive, even I don't think that the Enoch, even though he never died, that his body, without it being changed in some way, shape, or form, could be in the presence of God because anything corruptible or unholy couldn't be in the presence of something that is holy, um, which I think is why we can't you know, see God's face without dying, as, as we are corruptible without Christ, of course. But even now, this is a tent that we're living in. And so when Christ kind of makes us new, it's not our body that he makes new. It's our spirit that he makes new, that when we become a new creation. And so we, at least us, we have to wait until the end. Those guys, I don't know. Maybe that is, uh, maybe they got it early. Maybe they didn't. Maybe it's something different. Not sure. Ryan, I have one that came to me through a text message. Um, and I'll just say, too, if some of you have questions, but you don't really want to ask them in front of everybody, um, you know, feel free to, you can do the private chat in the Zoom session. You just ask me the question. I'll bring it out to Brian. Or if some of you have my contact information, um, I can go through it that direction if you shoot me a text message. But Brian, the question is this, when we get to heaven, uh, will we feel sad because someone um, that we know is missing? Uh, good question. Isaiah, I want to say 56 or 55 or 54. <laughs> I know that doesn't, but go read some Isaiah tonight, I guess. But Isaiah says this, at the time of the new heavens and the new creation, actually it could be 65 now that I'm thinking about it. It says that... <laughs> At uh, when the new heavens and the new earth are happening, when they're created, it says the former things will not be remembered. Now, what that means exactly, I don't know, but I do know the scriptures say there will be no tear, no sorrow, none of that. So, whether that means that when <clears throat> there's a new heaven and a new earth, we're not going to remember the former things and say, Oh, I remember my son who went astray and he's not here i kind of think no you're not going to have any memories of anything that would bring you sorrow so how it is i don't know but i can guarantee you're not going to have that sorrow there because the scriptures are clear about that but um i've always kind of looked at that isaiah i think it's 65 now that but somewhere in there where it uh, does say the former things will no longer be remembered. And maybe to add to that too, I think the good things will be, but maybe it's just wiping out all the bad memories, all those things. But I think you're going to have, again, and I don't want to keep referring to this dream as if it's scripture, but um, you know, when I saw Paul and Barnabas and those people, the only thing going through my mind, I knew them in connection with godliness, but I didn't know any connection. Like I said, I didn't recognize, oh, they're missing teeth. I didn't recognize anything in the bad sense. But 
it's, it's almost like the deeds had followed them, that I knew who they were and what, what they were about. And I was so excited to see them and visit with them about Jesus. And um, so maybe it's something like that, that we just, we don't have any reference to any of the negatives, but just the positives. I do have a closing question, but I, I want to just, um, actually, I've got two closing questions. So if anybody has one to fit in here before we, we address these other two. Okay, so Brian, um, <clears throat> I, I heard once in a study, and this was somebody that went to Jerusalem, and they were taking tours, and they were at a home, which would have been um, a, a Jewish home and explained the whole process of what a mansion was. And it was, to what was described to me, it was a side room attached to the home of the, the uh, husband's or the groom's dad. And so um, what brought to life, uh, as far as understanding the, the mansions in John 14, when he says, in my father's house, there are many mansions, and I'm going there to prepare a place for you, and that a groom would go and, and build this onto his, his parents' home, um, and then they would go and live there. Now, not having been to Israel myself and not knowing all of those details, you've been there on uh, a couple of occasions, maybe even several. Um, have you ever heard anything to that degree regarding mansions? Yeah, and, and that's right on. You know, there are so many things that we, growing up in America, miss because we, well, honestly, because we've had an anti-Semitic attitude. And so we've kind of rejected the Jewish people, and therefore we've rejected kind of their understanding of Jewish scriptures, which is what we have. And so... That, that is what happened for a wedding is to the, the bridegroom would go and prepare a place and build this house onto his father's home. And it was the whole picture. And that's the thing. I mean, my, my mind is going in so many places here because even in the betrothal and in communion and whatnot, um, when the the groom would basically give this bride a cup to drink and if she would drink that cup it was an acceptance of that being betrothed to to him and so when we take that communion as well we remember jesus we remember that but it's also uh, a, an acceptance of i am your bride i i am willing to be your bride and that's why it's very important you know that communion is, is only for his people um, but even all of that is connected to the building of this house. And so once that house was ready, the, the bride would be waiting for the, her future husband to come. And he didn't know that she didn't know the day or the hour or when he's coming. So she was always to be prepared and ready, which again, we see the parable of the, the 10 virgins. Um, and so he would come in at a time not known to steal his bride away then. And uh, so, but absolutely that house had to be finished first. It was kind of his way of making sure that he was going to be able to take care of 
the, the woman, his bride. And once it's ready and he has a place for her to be, he comes and gets her. So absolutely. Uh, just other examples like the rooster crow. We, we read that and we think about, oh, we hear, you know, some cockle-doodle-doo going on when Peter denies Jesus. A Jew doesn't see that at all. As a matter of fact, history and the Talmud tell us you couldn't have roosters in Jerusalem at all. They were forbidden. At the time of Christ, it was forbidden to have them because they, they were just messy and everything like that. Even our Jewish guide uh, that we have when we go there, uh, I was talking about that this uh, time here a couple months ago, and he, he rips out his Talmud and, and reads that very part to the whole group. And so what is the rooster crow? When they would blow the trumpet every morning, there was a, a special priest who would grow up, go up to the pinnacle of the temple. And on the pinnacle of the temple, we've even found in archaeology, it, it, it is called the rooster crow. They would blow the trumpet three times. It was kind of like a wake-up call, one for the, the priests, uh, one for the Levites, one for the people kind of thing. But um, more than likely... There were, it wasn't a, a rooster crowing, it was the sound of the shofar blowing when Peter heard that rooster crow. Um, there's just lots of different things like that that in a Jewish home, um, Philip being under the uh, fig tree, and you know he comes to Jesus, and Jesus says, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree, and he goes, oh, you are the son of God. It's like, what? Just because you saw me under the fig tree? Well, under a fig tree to a Jew is a, a phrase that they still use to this day about being in prayer and in meditation. And so uh, Philip must have been praying to God about something, maybe about the Messiah, something. And uh, he was in prayer when that happened. And so just little things like that that make the, the scriptures come alive when we understand it from a Jewish perspective, I think, are just beautiful. And that house being attached is just one of them. Well, Brian, on behalf of everybody that's a part of this study tonight, I want to thank you for joining us and taking your evening and, and also study up to this to be able to present this to us. So thank you for all that you did to, to make this happen tonight. I do want to, um, to close our time in a, a word of prayer together and um, also just a prayer of blessing over Brian and his uh, ministry.